Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to Moving the Needle, a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create new pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about equity and economic impact. Let's talk about some alarming statistics. Median black wealth is 12 times less than median white wealth. And it is estimated that median black wealth by 2053 will be zero. That's right, zero. As we know, entrepreneurship and small business growth is a critical opportunity for wealth creation. But there are still large barriers standing in the way of black entrepreneurs raising capital. According to a Kauffman Foundation report, black entrepreneurs are more than twice as likely to be negatively impacted by the cost of capital and almost three times more likely than whites to have profits negatively impacted by access to capital. Black entrepreneurs rely the most on personal credit cards to fund new companies or acquire existing ones. Conversely, white entrepreneurs rely the most on business loans from banks or other financial institutions as a source of startup capital. One way to crack this code is to increase access to venture capital. The good news is that private equity investment in black startup entrepreneurs doubled last year, but these black entrepreneurs still received only a tiny fraction, 1.2% of venture capital invested in U.S. startups. That compares with the more than 13% of the U.S. population that is black or African American. Jackie Robinson once said, a life is not important except in the impact it has on others' lives. That quote is a favorite of our guest today, as we talk about how we can impact the lives of entrepreneurs of color on episode one of Moving the Needle. Our guest today is Aaron Walker, CEO of Camelback Ventures based in New Orleans. Camelback's mission is to increase access to opportunity for entrepreneurs of color and women by investing in their ventures and leadership while advocating for fairness in their funding. 
Camelback just launched its eighth cohort of founders and has now passed a total of 100 entrepreneurs that they have helped since its inception in 2013. Camelback Ventures specifically is investing in entrepreneurs with scalable ideas, and that private equity investment has helped these ventures attract 10 times further follow-on capital. And this capital has led to scaled ventures impacting tens of thousands of people. The mission of increasing access to opportunity is personal for Aaron. We talk about uh, zip code determining destiny. Before Aaron got to Camelback, he went to law school. I did too. And like me, Aaron is a non-practicing lawyer at this point. Because although the education was fantastic, there was something that was missing. Eventually, I wanted to not help one reinsurance company buy another reinsurance company. I went to figure out how to use these skills to, to do things I cared about. Welcome, Aaron. Well, first, thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Jonathan, for, for, have, for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I am coming to you from, from New Orleans, and we are in the midst of a, a lot of new exciting things at Camelback. We just launched our eighth cohort of fellows. That, that's what we call the entrepreneurs who we work with. We just crossed the century mark in terms of the number of uh, founders that we have worked with since our inception. And so that has been really exciting. We just actually brought them down a few weeks ago for something we call Welcome Week, which is this, the beginning of the program. And you know, it had been two years since we had done in-person programming because of, because of the pandemic. And so it was, just, it was just beautiful to be back in person with the team and with the entrepreneurs we're going to work with this year. Aaron, it's great to connect with you again, echoing Christopher's comments. Thanks for being here. Talk a little bit about your model. How did you get to this point? What are maybe some of your personal inspiration and mission inspiration? And maybe they could be one and the same. I'm not sure. Yeah. We're interested in that backstory. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe the best place to start is just to tell you like, how I got here. And I think that, yeah. that will set up the, you know, what we're doing. And, you know, the, the semi-short story is that, <laughs> you know, I live in New Orleans now, but I grew up in New Jersey. And, you know, a lot of times in education, we talk about uh, zip code determining destiny. Mm-hmm. And I grew up on a street that was the dividing line between two zip codes. And I just happened to be up on, on the side of the street that was the sort of suburban side of the street. And because of that, I got to go to you know pretty good public schools. And because of that, I went on to four-year university, which not, neither of my parents had done. I think for me, a, lo- a lot of my personal and uh, by extension professional motivation has been how do I contribute my skills to creating a world where it doesn't really matter what zip code you grow up in. That oh, oh, hold on, hold yeah. on, Aaron. An arbitrary line. Yeah put you on this trajectory. Exactly. That is incredible. And, and you know, and, and so that's for me, it's like, how, how do we get rid of that? How do we get rid of that line so that uh, a, a young black boy or black girl or whomever can grow up in any community and have the resources and the support system so that they can be, you know, whatever their heart and potential will, will allow them to be. And I feel like in the, in the multiple iterations of things that I've done, that is what I am seeking, and the most current iteration of that has been through entrepreneurship and, and Camelback Ventures. You're, so you're coming out of 
college, you, you've got this background, you're clearly driven and committed to making a difference. Uh, tell us about some of the first sort of outcomes that you were driving towards. What were some of the influencers that you sort of connected with along the way that helped you continue to refine how you were thinking about your role as a change maker? So when I went to college, I was a foreign affairs major, and I thought I'd have some career in international politics. Uh, that has not happened yet, so maybe that's that's the next act. <laughs> I see an ambassador walker out there somewhere. <laughs> you know, I'd be okay with that. Yes. I'd be okay with that, like Jamaica or something like that. Yeah. You know, I, I applied to Teach for America, and I got in, and I actually went in thinking that you know, education was the way to go. One one of my, my most favorite uh, summer jobs I had while I was in college was working at a nonprofit called Harlem RBI, which was a program in East Harlem. And that sort of really hooked me into education. And even though I wasn't going to school to study education, it was something I was really interested in. And so I thought maybe that was going to be my mechanism, was through, was through education and through being a classroom teacher. You know, I, along that journey, though, what I realized for, for myself is that we really ask teachers to perform heroic tasks to give kids a basic education. And that's not that's not to take anything away from teachers. I mean, the work that they do is, is really good. God's work when you, when you think about it. But the obstacles we put in front of them are just tremendous. I don't know if you all have been watching Abbott Elementary, but it's about these teachers in Philadelphia. And I feel like I'm watching my life on TV. And so what I really wanted to do then was say, like, how do we get rid of the odds? Like, I didn't want to romanticize this idea of helping young people beat the odds. It's like, well, what would life look like if they just didn't have any? And so for some reason, I thought law school would help me figure that out. And I think part of it was, you know, there was this drumbeat in the early aughts, you know, education being the civil rights movement of my generation. I thought, well, I guess civil rights means I have to go to law school and figure stuff out. <laughs> Uh, I did go to law school. I don't know if I figured it all out. Well, we share that path. That's why I went to law school, too. And I don't practice to this day. Yeah, we've got two, we've got two, recover, we've got two recovering lawyers. I feel you. You have to understand that. So I went, I went for that reason. And that took me down a different path. And I really started to think about, well, what is the role of like economics and money and stuff like that? And so like a lot of folks, you go to law school wanting to change the world and you leave working at a law firm. And that was me. Like I ended up going to a law firm in New York, and it was fine. I, I learned a lot there, and I think it was um, a fortuitous education in what I'm doing now with entrepreneurship. So I'm really glad I had that experience. But eventually, I wanted to not help one reinsurance company by another reinsurance company. I went to figure out how to use these skills to, to do things I cared about. And that got me, I, I had an opportunity to go work at a venture philanthropy fund in New York City called the Fund for Public Schools. And that sort of brought me closer to the places that I wanted to be. And so at the fund, we were investing in early stage ideas, trying to help the New York City Department of Education improve education for the biggest school district in the country. And that began to show me the power of what private money can do to really incubate innovative ideas. That sort of set me on this path and had the opportunity to work with some really great folks. And so just was, was around a group of great people who sort of taught me how to fundraise, you know, gave me this opportunity and, and sort of put me on the path that I'm on. We actually have similar paths. I had an epiphany. Did you have an epiphany or was it a gradual transition out of uh, one area of contribution into another? How did you get to Camelback Ventures and that investing and entrepreneurship support? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say it was, it was uh, as, as the kids would say, it was a slow burn. You know, not necessarily like this, this one moment of, of epiphany, but what I can say is 
you know, ha- having this experience at the fund sort of encouraged me to go out and try a couple entrepreneurial ideas of my own. So the reality is like Camelback was the third entrepreneurial thing that I had launched. And so the first two, you know, have come and gone. And at the time, you know, it was very sort of felt very painful to go through those experiences. But in many ways, it was setting me up for Camelback and in a lot of ways, you know, teaching me what not to do. And so, you know, those I- are lessons. <laughs> And let's and let's let's pause on that for a sec. I think all of us have those of us who have been an entrepreneurial journey can in very much appreciate the you know the the battle worn scars that you get through experiences. And before we get to the Camelback, what are some of those lessons that you've learned? What are the things that you've carried with you into this next version of work? And even what are you imparting upon you know other entrepreneurs that you have now invested in? So the first company I started was called Teacher Capital Management. Without getting too deep into that, it was essentially how do teachers have agents like athletes and entertainers do was the was the concept. What what I learned from that is that like the policy conditions have to actually be appropriate for you to start a company. And so with that company, essentially to have a market to build a business off of, I needed to figure out how to decertify the teachers union in New York City. And I was like, well, how do I get eighty thousand people to decertify the union? That's 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 wild. And it wasn't like like anti-unions or anti-representation, but like that was the, right. the the policy reality of creating a business in that space. So that was that was one lesson learned. Don't just be enamored with your idea. Understand the policy context in which you're trying to build something in, particularly, I think, in like an impact space where there are a lot of like policy influences in the ideas that we're trying to change. And sometimes it's like the policy things that are creating the conditions and like that's the thing that we need to change more than trying to find an innovative like business idea to, to solve. So that that was one. And two is, you know, businesses live in the real world, not on paper. Sometimes we can just feel so uh, protective of our ideas and afraid to share them. And, you know, I remember in the first company, it was like version 45 of the concept paper. And I was like, well, I'm not going to perfect this on paper. Like you perfect it by putting out there in the real world and figuring out what works and what doesn't and sort of getting up from those things. And so I think, you know, that was one of the things I carried with me. It was like, don't overthink this. Yeah, spend some time thinking, but as, as, as fast as you can, try to get it out there and figure out what works and what doesn't. And that'll tell you where to go more than trying to perfect it on a piece of paper. Without a doubt. You know, one thing I'll say real quick, Jonathan, on that one is that in some of my earlier entrepreneurial ventures, it was one of those things where I had everyone sign any ADA possible, right? And so you were swearing into secrecy, and it became, you know, barrier upon barrier upon sharing your idea out, and it became a huge barrier to your own growth curve, right? Because you're like, okay, I've got the greatest idea since sliced bread. I'm going to keep it hidden under a rock. And the only way that you can see it is if you sign an NDA, which makes zero sense from an entrepreneurial perspective. So I can appreciate the need to just get out there and do it and share it and, and, and have it engage with the real world. So yeah, amen to that. Let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by SHRM. Our partners at SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. 
It's why Sherm made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. So you can learn more at SHRM.org. That's S-H-R-M.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to moving the needle. Aaron, human interest question. Camelback Ventures. How did you arrive at that name? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So most people think that it's like a mountain in Arizona, and there is a mountain in Arizona called Camelback Mountain, <laughs> and there's a water bottle company. We are, we are spelled differently, but in New Orleans, and in particular, but I think also in the American South, there is a kind of house that is called a Camelback, and it is essentially a shotgun helm with a second floor in the back. So you know, it, it was like sort of a popular home in the urban South. Uh, they, they started putting second floors in the back uh, of the home when they needed more space, and in particular in communities of color, because like you need to make things work, you needed more space. And the way that they used to, and maybe this is like the, less, the real lesson in life, is that everything comes down to taxes. The way they used to assess taxes was based on the frontage of your house. And so if you put the second floor in the back, you didn't have to, to sort of do that, but you, you got what you needed. And so to me, it was just like, it was a, it was a hat tip to the innovation um, and ingenuity of communities of color, which is like, we're always doing what we need to do to make it and using, you know, innovative tools to be able to do that. And so I wanted to uh, get, give a nod to that, given the fact that the mission of Camelback Ventures is to support social entrepreneurs of color. So let's build on the, the origin idea and name to how you actually, you mentioned was your third venture. And so how did you arrive at the idea for Camelback? Yeah. Thinking about my first two companies, it was really like, how could I create a business that would help other businesses? And how could I create something that I wish had existed when I was starting those those first two companies? And so, you know, when I started to reflect on my own experience, you know, I realized that we were all telling the same story around lack of access to coaching, connections and capital, all in these different ways. I was like, well, that's what we're going to build our model around. We're going to build our model around how do we give a set of entrepreneurs who don't have the same access to those three resources, access to those three resources to be able to grow successful companies. And so had the inkling of, a, of the idea in 2013. We did a pilot at the end of that year into 2014 with five entrepreneurs. And I said what I just said to you. I think all entrepreneurs need the same three things, coaching, connections, and capital. I said, but I don't have any money to give you. <laughs> so no, no capital, but I will use my connections to help you, and I will coach you to, to victory. And so we did that for four months, and lo and behold, things started to happen. Someone built a prototype. That prototype led to, to customers. And by we, I guess at this point, it was really the royal we. It was just me, you know, took that pilot and was able to raise a million dollars from it. And, you know, that was powerful, right? I think like going back to what we were just talking about before was like getting it off a of paper. Like it was so much more powerful to raise money talking about real people. I said, look, look what I did with my money, which was not saying much because I didn't have that much money. But here's what we did on $10,000. Here's what we could do with a million. And that, that was a tangible story that sort of put us on the road that we're on. One of the struggles around 
entrepreneurship, particularly people of color, even more specifically black entrepreneurs. Over the last 40 years, you know, Aaron, we've had exponential growth of activity. Lots of new businesses formed, but we haven't followed a similar trajectory of job and wealth creation from those business formations. How are you attacking that so that with the new energy and how is it aligning to also create jobs and wealth commensurate with that level of energy? So I think two things. One is, you know, what we have said from the beginning is that we want to be the friends and family funder that, you know, some folks don't have. So if you don't come from money or have a network where, you know, your uncle's willing to write you a $50,000 check and not get it back, where do you go? And so we want... And not get it back is the key part. <laughs> you know, and so we want Camelback to be one of those places, particularly for, for entrepreneurs of color. We can get into the, the racial wealth gap, but this to me is like one of the products of that, is that disparity means that when people want to go out and start businesses, they often don't have the resources internally or within the network to kind of make that happen. Like, I remember one of our entrepreneurs saying they had $7 left in their bank account, and then they got the email from Camelback saying that they got in, and that like completely changed the trajectory that they were on. And so that that to me like those kind of examples are the ones that I always sort of sit back and say like this is this is why we're doing why we're doing that so that, that, there's that piece like the capital piece but to your point it's like more than what just one organization can do and so what we've started to do over the last couple of years also is not just to do the entrepreneur side work but also to do the investor and funder side work and how do we work with those institutions and those individuals to make sure that they understand these issues and that they're deepening their commitment to investing in entrepreneurs of color and women in more equitable ways. Because if we if we don't do that, then this just becomes like an academic exercise where we get all of these organizations started and companies started that are doing a great job. But if they continue to be undercapitalized, it's just not going to work. Great insight. Coaching the investor class as well. Without a doubt, and demonstrating some real models about how to do it and how to do it differently. So on that note, Aaron, can you just walk us exactly through the model? So help us better understand, you mentioned, the, for example, you just hit a really cool milestone, which is you've had over 100 entrepreneurs go through the Camelback program. What does that mean to go through the program? You mentioned coaching connections and capital as being the critical ingredients, but how does that translate into how you've actually designed the model? And then what are the target outputs and outcomes that you guys are tracking against that? So there's a capital piece, $40,000. There's a coaching piece. Every entrepreneur we work with gets a coach that we pay for. There's a connection piece, which is like, how are we using our social networks to help connect them to clients and customers and board members, so on and so forth. We also have a curriculum that we lead them through. And so there's a, there's a lot of C's at Camelback, if you, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> you got a, go, a good alliteration going on. The, the Camelback, Camelback C's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah got to stick, stick with the alliteration. <laughs> yeah, we call them core competencies. Core competencies, Camelback, capital connections. Coaching. Coaching. Cultural yeah. competence. You got it all. <laughs> If you need to know how to pronounce one letter at Camelback, it's a C. It's a C. Uh, and so there's five core competencies, and like the whole the whole curriculum is is centered around what are the what are the skills that we think every CEO needs, regardless of the kind of company that they're building. So we talk about 
hiring and managing talent, which matters no matter what kind of company you're building. We talk about like being pitch ready in all the various iterations, whether it is in the elevator, at, at a competition, on a podcast, on the 30-minute call with an investor where, you know, it sounds like it's a conversation, but really it's a pitch. Like, we sort of take them through all those iterations. You know, we, we talk about, you know, strategy and sort of how to help them to think strategically. And so we, we go we go through all, all that with them. And then obviously there's also the last, the last C was like the community piece, which is one of the things we have seen over time, and we sort of knew this from the beginning, which is just the importance of being in a like-minded community where you feel psychologically safe, right? And there's just a lot of data that talks about what happens when people feel psychological safety. It increases their ability to be risk-taking. It increases their ability to be innovative. And if you ask yourself, well, what's the core function of an entrepreneur? It's part of it is those two things. And so to be able to come to Camelback and be in a space where you aren't the lonely only, it's often like, sometimes it can feel like the, the most intangible, sort of like soft thing, but in many ways it's like the most important thing that we create for them so that they can live into their potential. You know, in underserved or minority or most vulnerable communities, most of the infrastructure from social services to business development are based on narrow program delivery. You've taken a different approach. You've built an ecosystem and I think even an ecosystem plus, because not only are you providing these kinds of services to entrepreneurs, but you're helping to bring along the investor class and helping them to meet one another in, in new ways. And the investor class cannot be immovable, right? They have to be amenable to growing and coaching as well. If they don't move, it's almost impossible for the entrepreneur to connect up. I think that's a fantastic model and certainly can inform others. Any insights around the depth of the challenges you face in this work every day? What keeps you up at night? That's a, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that th- this piece that you're talking about, which is how to change, how to change the groundwater, we talk about the entrepreneurs. You know, like, how do we fix the entrepreneurs? How do we give them these programs? So on and so forth. And I think there's important work to be done there. But, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about your favorite body of water and you see the fish who are sick or turned over, you don't ask yourself, what's wrong with the fish? You say, what's in the water? You know, and so I think we've been asking ourselves that question more and more over the last several years. And if we want to create a new world, if we want to create a new place for people to be successful... No, we can't just focus on the fish. We can't just focus on entrepreneurs of color. We have to focus on what's in the water. And I think that resource holders and resource allocators play a significant role in what that water looks like. And, you know, because in many ways we are a part of that class, we are an investor. And so we have an opportunity to invest differently, but then also try to be an example and a push to uh, sort of see the potential of what it could look like if we sort of cleaned up some of this water and how many more entrepreneurs could be successful if we did that. Yeah, I mean, that brings us in. It is no coincidence that we're having you on this podcast because we feel like you're not only walking the talk in terms of the model itself, but you're actually exemplifying what the system change needs to be to be able to realize something that you all have written quite a bit about, which is around generational wealth creation. And how do we actually address 
sort of long-standing disparities in our society that's proving again and again to be the barriers at hand. So again, going back to the theory of change idea, you've talked very specifically about sort of the work that you do with the entrepreneurs themselves. How are you measuring success? And then how are you thinking about that on the systems change level? Because that sometimes can be a challenge when you, you need to deliver every day on the work of Camelback Ventures, right? But, but you, you've also talked about the fact that it requires a different way of influencing systems in order for the real work to be able to have the kind of impact potential possible. So how do you, how do you think about immediate outputs and outcomes in terms of the work that you do on a day-to-day basis? And then how do you balance that with trying to do some of that thought leadership and systems change work that's so critical? I mean, some of the things we look look at on the on the output basis are just you know how much money our fellows are raising post our program, you know, and so we we've seen our fellows raise you know upwards of forty to fifty million dollars after leaving in the aggregate, leaving Camelback, and so that's great. Right? It's like in the aggregate, we've put in about five million dollars into these hundred uh, companies over the last several years, and they've turned that into another fifty plus. You know, and so we look at that metric and say, like, we, we want to be a catalyst of capital. We know that we can't sort of fill the whole capital stack, but can our dollars begin to catalyze other dollars? So we, we look at that piece. We look at uh, company survival and success. So on a percentage basis, how many of our companies are still going concerns? We look at job creation. You know, we, we just did a, a survey of our, our past companies, and 76% of them said, on average, they created eight new jobs, so that 100% of those jobs that they created were living wage jobs. So for us, it's also not just like about numbers, it's about quality. You know, what kind of opportunities, what kind of companies are we building? So we look at, we look at specific metrics like that. Obviously, we have an impact thesis to around, you know, improving education. We have, you know, specific metrics that we'll look at in, in terms of educational achievement, depending on the, the, the kinds of companies that we're, we're working with in those areas. But we've also done stuff in criminal justice and financial inclusion. And then I think on the sort of broader ecosystem side, part of what we're trying to do is, you know, we are trying to increase by a thousand percent the amount of funding that goes to entrepreneurs of color in in this space and so you look at some of the data and you know it's somewhere between four and seven percent of funding goes to entrepreneurs of color whether philanthropically or on sort of a for-profit investment side i i think there's an argument to do more than this but we're just going to try to start at proportionality if approximately 40 percent of our population are folks of color, can we go from 4% to 40% of the money that is being invested being in in communities of color? With the idea being that if we really believe that genius is equally distributed but access is not, then there's no reason why there should be such a high concentration of capital in one population and such a dearth of capital in other populations. How does it feel to... um be able to do both of your chief missions. You both create conditions with policy work and work with investors, and you're able to build out talent that can actually deliver programs that drive your metrics as well. Most organizations, I do one or the other. You're able to do both. 
You know, look, here's the thing is I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about intersectionality and the, the fact of the matter is that these are intersectional problems. And so it's going to take more than sort of single issue solutions to get there. And, you know, wealth and education and health issues and financial inclusion and poverty, like they, they all they all sort of work together. And so having that perspective, I think, is is what allows us to be able to have these multiple entry points and, you know, like. Pressure is a privilege, right? So it's like, yes, yes, it's, it's a lot. We have an opportunity to do it and we shouldn't see, quote unquote, the pressure as a bad thing. We should see it that we have the privilege to, to work on this every day and to make a contribution and to influence what happens. And I, I see it as such and want for as long as they will allow me to be in this seat and be on this earth to say that I contributed something. Absolutely. Well, Christopher, sounds to me like our friend is moving that needle. He absolutely is moving the needle. And I actually think it's one of these interesting things talking about intersectionality. It reminded me a little bit of um, a great book that uh, others might want to check out called Forces for Good, which looks at how social enterprises like Camelback are really moving the needle on these kinds of things. And one of them is the intersectionality that you were talking about, Aaron. It's about the idea of getting into the arena recognizing the fact that you've got to be advocates. Now, we get scared away when we're 501c3s sometime about being able to actually think about how do we go about policy change and have policy conversations. And one of the connections that you and I have is through, obviously, the Aspen Institute, which is a platform of bringing thought leaders together and really thinking about social change on every dimension. You know, one of the ways uh, that I think people should be paying attention to your work is obviously going directly to your website at camelbackventures.org. And there's actually even a section there on, you know, how to get involved. Obviously, we all bring networks into these conversations and ways to be able to extend our networks to be able to help on the connection side. Other ways that you think that other people can really, you know, get involved, learn more, and be part of your efforts to, to move the needle? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, like you said, going to our website, just learning about what we're doing. Obviously, you know, the fact of the matter is that, like, Camelback is also the problem we're trying to solve. Like, in many ways, running this organization has been a very meta experience because, you know, we, we are the thing we're trying to solve, too. Like, we are an organization started and led by people of color who are trying to bring about social change. And so we too need coaching, connections, and capital. And you know, our task and our goal is to have it in enough abundance so that we can turn around and do it for our entrepreneurs. So when I think about how people can contribute in some way. Hey, Aaron, before we let you go, one of the things that we always love to, to ask people we're having conversations with is people that are doing needle moving shit need the motivation to do it. So what's inspiring you? Like, what books are you reading? What music gets you going? Let's pass some recommendations along to some of the other change makers out there. So I'll start. I'll start on the music side. There, there's a song like some some of my like hype songs these days. There's a song called Hall of Famer, you know, that I listen to. There's a, a song by Goody Mob called Fight to Win that I really like. There's a song by this uh, New Orleans artist. His name is PJ Morton called Claustrophobic that I, I really like. It's it's a little bit like of a fu song when I'm feeling frustrated at folks. On the book side, you know, there, there's a long pile of books that I tell myself I'm going to keep reading that I haven't gotten to, but. The ones that I have read, uh, there's a book I read last last summer called The Secret History of Home Economics that I thought was really great. It's just like the history of home economics and really how that field was created because women did not have access to the sciences. 
And so home economics was a field that was essentially created to allow women to enter sort of scientific fields, but through like this this lens that people thought was okay for them and how they were able to like change the world through doing that. So I just thought that was like a history I didn't know about it actually gave me a lot of ideas about things that we could be doing and we could be investing in. Um, and then I recently read the, the former CEO of, of Pepsi, and I, I think I'm saying her name properly, Indra Nui. Her, she wrote a memoir called My Life in Full that I thought was just a, a great book, just learning about her growing up in India and her coming to the U.S. and ascending to, to run Pepsi it was, just a, it was just a great story. Very good. That's a pretty good list. That is a good list, and I'm ready to you know get right into it in terms of when, I'm, when people are pissing me off. <laughs> How do I get back in the game? You know, listening to the right kind of music in that, uh, in that world, uh, which is great. I want to give some shout outs and thanks, but Jonathan, anything to say before we wrap up? No, it, other than uh, our deep appreciation to Aaron for having this kind of conversation, opening the aperture a bit around Camelback Ventures, how you got there, what you're doing, why you're doing it, and frankly, the success you're having. We don't want to lose friends, so we hope to keep you close. Definitely. Always. All right. <laughs> and Aaron and I actually share a road trip, which actually solidified <laughs> our friendship many years ago, where we really connected and bonded on many fronts but then have really continued to establish that friendship in part by what brought us together today. And I want to give a shout out to the Aspen Institute for being able to support uh, this podcast, Moving the Needle, and, and bringing Aaron into this mix through the Braddock Scholarship and through MasterCard is working closely with the Aspen Institute on the Center for Inclusive Growth, which is all about this work. We're really appreciative of Aspen Institute continuing to drive that work going forward and continuing to illustrate and amplify the great work of organizations like Camelback. So uh, shout out to the Aspen Institute. Aaron, thanks for, so much for joining us today. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time and uh, can't wait to see where this $30 million fund goes. Obviously, as we go from 100 to 1,000 in your cohort, the kind of impact that uh, you are going to continue to have is going to be impressive. So Aaron, any final words before we wrap up? No, just just thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Christopher, and your and your team. It's been a pleasure. Jonathan and I would love to thank everyone who helped to make this podcast possible, including the Aspen Institute and MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, the enormously talented Bart Matthews, who created our theme music, and Devin Lewis Designs for our beautiful cover art. Jonathan, I'm going to give you the bat the last word. We got to go there. Thanks again for listening to the first episode of Moving the Needle. If you're here, you're a first mover. So keep that going and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. We hope each episode is a reminder to move the needle. You got to do needle moving shit. There you go. (laughs) Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes, but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. 
although the economic narrative of the 20th century in many ways served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot, meet the needs of the 21st century. Today, we need all hands on deck particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities, Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's the future economy and inclusive competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. We had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.